Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we're going to go into part four of our In the Beginning series with Mr. Jeff Verdorn. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Hi, Bill. How are you? Good. I'm good. I'm excited. Can't wait. I am too. I yeah. I like this series. Obviously, uh, when I teach it, this is a I think it's a twelve part series. So we're going to try to squeeze this in on the radio, and I think five, right? Five or six. Right. Yeah, Rosie just held up six fingers. So six, we're gonna do we six. Got a couple, yeah, we're got a couple more. Okay, we'll do it. I mean, let's let's take our time through this. We're in no rush. Perfect. Yeah, maybe th- we can do a little review of last time, part three. I think you've got a few things to add to part three that you didn't do last time. And then yeah. we'll head into part four, which is I think is Genesis chapter four. Yeah. So last time we talked about the fall primarily. So that was Genesis three. We talked about this, the fact that we have a literal garden with a literal tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a literal command that God gave to Adam not to eat of that tree, and a literal fall. And without this concept that these are literal events, understand biblically there is no need for a literal redeemer to come. So in our sixth session, probably the last session, we'll talk a little bit about the idea of evolution and whether or not that's compatible with the Bible and I say, no, it's not. We need a real Adam in a real garden with a real tree, a real command, and a literal fall. Otherwise, we don't need a literal second Adam, the Christ, the Messiah, to come to redeem mankind. So that's very important. We talked about the consequences to the fall a little bit, and we, we saw that Adam now had to toil for his food. Uh, Eve had increased pain in childbearing. Uh, the serpent had to crawl on his belly. Um, and Satan... It says this uh, in Genesis 3, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, most theologians agree that this is actually the first prophecy in Scripture for the coming Messiah. So right after the fall... God gives us a little glimpse. Now, it's not much. It doesn't say the Messiah is going to come and die for the sins of the world. It talks about it in this, in this sense, that the seed is going to come, and he will crush your head, and, and I think that's the Messiah will crush Satan's head. He's a defeated foe. His fate has been written. And eventually, when Christ returns, and, and at the end of the millennium, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 21, and he is a defeated foe. And you will strike his heel, meaning Satan will appear to get a victory on the Christ, on the cross, but really it's just like a bruised heel. Mm -hmm. Um, So there it is, the first prophecy right after the fall. Um, And I read that story called The Christmas Seed last time that kind of outlined there, gave some detail to that. One of the things that I wanted to mention that's so important in our worldview understanding of of who man is, is this understanding of the consequences of the fall. Man died that day. And we talked about this last time, that this was a primarily a spiritual death 
Romans 5 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. So because of Adam and Eve, you know, way back when, every single person on this planet that's ever been born has been born spiritually dead, separated from God. So that's the the fall, one of the consequences of the fall. Can I ask a listener question already? Yeah. Why didn't God walk through the garden as Eve was going to the tree? And stop her? Mm, Just have a conversation with her. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, on the what ifs are always hard to answer, right? You have to deal in the what is. But uh, if God would have stopped her that day, um, what would have happened the next day or the next day or the next day? Um, I have a feeling that it wouldn't have taken long for mankind to actually break God's command. He'd already told them. You know, I told you once, Eve, you know, do I have to come down there and tell you again and again mm-hmm. um, kind of thing? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this also goes to the heart of free will. God gave us a choice and we have free will. We can choose to obey his command or we can choose to ignore his command and disobey it. So today, right now, his command is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Are you going to follow that command and believe in Christ for your salvation or not? Mm-hmm. So, um, so spiritual death, we now live in a fallen world with fallen people who make fallen decisions, and we have a fallen angel who's down here mucking things up. Remember, it says in, in Peter that he is your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul reminds us that in 2 Corinthians 2, we should know his schemes. And I like that because we should know our enemy. Who is our enemy and what are his schemes? I do a teaching on this and I I break his schemes down into three parts, all right? He tempts, he torments, and he lies. So how do we battle lies? We battle lies with truth. How do we battle temptation? Well, God says to resist the devil, flee from the devil, and uh, uh, and God also promises that we, when we are tempted, he will always provide a way out. And then he torments. And, and this is a harder one. Uh, Paul says that, that, that for torment, we should endure it as a good soldier uh, of Christ. Uh, that's all, not always easy when you're experiencing torment from the enemy. Uh, but remember, Paul had a thorn in his flesh that was sent to him by a messenger of Satan, and he prayed to God three times to take it away, and, and God didn't. Um, so what was the result? Well, we know Paul learned the secret um, of being content, and he said, in my weakness, you are made strong uh, in him. So uh, even in this suffering, uh, we can have good things that come out of it. So, But that's our spiritual battle. Paul describes our spiritual battle. We know we're in a spiritual battle. Uh, that is our reality. Um, my view of spiritual battle is we just simply put our eyes on the Lord. He fights our battles for us. I love this passage in Exodus. I think it's 14. 14, 14. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading your mind. You are. Yeah. I, the Lord says, will fight for you. All you need to do is be still. Oh, that's perfect. I was mm-hmm. struggling coming, bringing that to my, my mind, but I love that passage. He will fight this battle for us. We just need to be still. So isn't that a perfect picture of our spiritual battle in this world? We just trust in him. Mm. So creation has fallen. Even 
creation itself has been frustrated, Paul says. In in Romans 8, it says this, for creation itself was subject to frustration, um, that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up into the present time. So when you look around at creation, and and we see that this place is broken. Have you noticed that this place is broken, this world we live in? It's all because of Genesis 3. If you don't understand Genesis 3 in the fall, then this world would make no sense. You'd be going, why, God? Why did you make it this way? Why are these things like they are? But he didn't make things this way. Creation was frustrated because of the fall. So we've got fallen people and fallen angels. We have sickness, disease, and earthquakes, and floods, and hurricanes, and uh, and all creation is growing. So when we see natural disasters, I always think of that verse that that creation has been groaning. But remember this, there is one day at the back of the book, I've read the back of the book, Bill, you know what happens? Mm-hmm. We win. We win. <laughs> oh, big time we win. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he said, and God says, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Do you understand that the last time the dwelling of God was with men was in the garden? And we don't see that happening again until Revelation 21, where I'm reading right now in the new heaven and new earth. But he will make all things right. He goes on and says, and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither will be there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. And God says, behold, I am making all things new. Oh, isn't that perfect? I love it. This is a temporary condition that we are all living in, in this brokenness as a result of Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. But there is going to come a day when Jesus returns, he will reign for a thousand years. And at the end of that reign, he will, he says, heaven and earth will flee. Heaven and earth will then come together and he will make all things new. And it's at that time that the curse that began in Genesis 3 will finally be completely and fully lifted for the people of God that have entrusted in Christ as their savior. Cool. That's very cool. Brilliant start. I love it. Now we're going to head into chapter four. Should we take our little break now? Yeah, let's do that. And then we'll pick Why it up we? on Genesis 4. Yeah, this is part four of In the Beginning, as we are going through the uh, early books in Genesis. My guest is Jeff Ferdorn, V-E-R-D-O-O-R-N. We'll be right back. series in the beginning. We're in part four, and it all started with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're all the way up to chapter 4. Cool. So the start of chapter 4 is Adam and Eve, after the fall, have their their children, their first children that are described in Genesis. We have Cain and Abel, and we all know the story. Cain kills Abel with a rock, and uh, we had these offerings from God that uh, one was a grain offering, one was a livestock offering, and some, I'll tell you, some will make a a big deal about the type of offering was the reason why God accepted one and not the other. And I, I look at this and I go, well, wait a minute. In the law of Moses that comes along, you know, a couple thousand years later, there are grain offerings and animal offerings, and there's both kinds of offerings. Remember, these offerings were supposed to be the first and the best, the first fruits and so on, but they were also supposed to be offered by faith. So Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel's offering was by faith, where Cain's wasn't. So I actually don't think it was specifically the type of offering that was the issue. I think the issue was whether or not it was offered by faith in, mm-hmm. the, in the person. With I think it was a heart issue, in other words, of, between Cain and Abel. And, of course, then Cain kills Abel because he gets kind of jealous that God accepted his offering and uh, his brother's offering and not his own. Uh, so he picks up a rock and he beats him to death with a rock. And immediately after that, there were calls for rock control and and arguments that you should only carry so many rocks in your possession. <laughs> I don't and, think so. <laughs> no. And then counter arguments that say rocks don't kill people, people kill people. But my point is, is that man, this is the state of man. Right. Whatever the weapon, uh, this is the heart of man. So whether it's a rock or a knife or a gun or whatever, men have since this first murder recorded in Scripture, man has been repeating this act over and over again. So It's amazing to think, Jeff, when there was only one family on the earth, that family included a murderer. <laughs> yeah, and, Didn't and, take long, did it? No. And so your, uh, your crazy uncle that comes over for Christmas isn't going to be that bad, right? No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one of the questions that we get in, in Genesis chapter 4 is then uh, Cain and Seth both marry then. So then there's another, Cain killed Abel, Seth was then born kind of uh, right after Abel was was killed, and it says that they were married. So we've got this issue. Well, who did they marry? Up to this point, we had not seen any women born of Adam and Eve, uh, but that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for genealogies or for or the Bible to list off certain people uh, in genealogies and generations and not list all of the children. So if Adam and Eve lived for, well, over 900 years eventually, they would have had many, many children, uh, many of whom would not have been recorded in Scripture. So I believe that it must have been other children of Adam and Eve that they married. That's the only other people that are available since we know that the that Eve was the mother of all and the father of all was Adam, Scripture declares, and as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so we, we say, well, wait a minute. I didn't think sisters and brothers could intermarry and have children. Isn't there a risk of birth defects and genetic birth defects? And that is true today. And in fact, in the law of Moses that came along uh, 2,500 years later, I think it was, uh, there was actually laws where God said close relations should not marry. But remember, we're in the second generation of God's creating mankind with perfect DNA. 
So I simply think it wasn't an issue with the, the created man of Adam and Eve and their children. Remember, we are copies of copies of a copy of a copy of a copy. If you took a sheet of paper and you tried to copy it over and over and over and over again, pretty soon it's going to become uh, not very legible. And uh, I think that's the same thing that's happening to DNA over the generations, that today it's an issue, back then it wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was the only people they could have married because we know all, all people, all human beings came uh, from Adam and Eve, and I think Scripture uh, declares that. So, um, in fact, I have, I, Genesis 3.20 says that Adam and his wife Eve was named Eve because she would become the mother of all living things. I, I'm making a big deal of this is because some people say that there was another race of people, of humanoids, that they would have uh, intermarried with, and I just don't believe that is uh, can be the case in uh, biblically. So then skip to Genesis 5, and we have these generations. So we actually list off, the Bible lists off the generations from Adam, who had Seth, who lived 912 years, to Enosh, uh, down through Methuselah, who was the oldest person recorded in the Bible, and he lived to be 969 years old and died right about the time of the flood, actually. So if you actually list off the years and when the flood actually happened, uh, Methuselah, at 969 years old, was probably killed by the flood. Um, Lamech then was his son, and then Noah was his son, born about 1,100 years after Adam, um, and Noah, by the way, also lived to be over 900 years So um, after the flood. He built the flood, I think it was his 600th year of life, if I'm not mistaken. So, But I, that's in next week. I, I've got some notes on it. So, uh, And remember, it was Enoch who in, Genesis, in Hebrews 11, it says that Enoch walked with God and then was no more. So Enoch actually didn't live that long. He actually was only 365 years old when for some reason God caught Enoch up to heaven. Now, I believe there's one other person that was caught up to heaven before they died, and that was Elijah. If you remember that story, you remember he was caught up to heaven in Mm -hmm. a fiery chariot. So we have two people in the Old Testament, Elijah and Enoch, both caught up to heaven and both never died. Now, you turn to the book of Revelation, and we have two people coming down from heaven who are the two witnesses described in Revelation chapter 11 who preached the gospel to the world that really had no more believers left on them because all the believers, I believe, are taken out of the way at the rapture. Mm -hmm. So I think the two witnesses, the identity of the two witnesses is Elijah and Enoch. Most theologians uh, believe Enoch is one of them. I'm sorry, Elijah is one of them. I believe that Malachi actually describes that Elijah is one of them, uh, but I believe Enoch is the second one because of this this story here. So mm-hmm. little sidebar. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, Noah's sons, they became pretty important in the repopulation of the whole earth. It says in uh, Genesis, I think it's a 9, verse uh, 19, these were the three sons of Noah, and they from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Correct. So just as all people originally came from one pair, couple, Adam and Eve, so everybody after the flood came from the descendants of Noah and his children. So uh, uh, Shem, 
Ham, and, and Japheth. In my class, I actually have a chart that I pass out that shows how theologians have tried to track where these children and their descendants went into different parts of the world and how the people group, the ethnicities, the ethnos of the world came into being. Um, as long as we're talking about it, uh, I also show a video, we can't, can't obviously show that here, that shows that the DNA for all of the different ethnicities in the world could easily come from this small group of people. So the DNA to have light skin and dark skin and tall people and short people and big-eared people and small-eared people are all in our DNA. And it's just the combination of those chromosomes that mm-hmm. create the characteristics that can create darker-skinned people or lighter-skinned people. So it's within a couple generations, actually. And as the world spread out after the flood and then got divided after the Tower of Babel, we have isolated people groups with their own language, with their subsets of DNA, and we have all the uh, different culture, ethnicities that we find in the world today. So that can be explained easily, and uh, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit more, I think, next time as well when we talk about evolution and some of the evolution stuff. All right, so that's Genesis 5. Now we get to Genesis 6. So this, is, this chapter starts with these uh, kind of famous Nephilim characters. Are you ready? I am. So it says in uh, Genesis chapter 6, let's, let's read the first couple verses so we're all kind of on the same page. It says this, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and, the daughters of, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. All right, so we've got three groups of people here. That's the perfect cliffhanger, too. <laughs> yeah, because we're getting really close to the, the break. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the Nephilim. And did the Nephilim marry and have children with the women? Right? <laughs> well, the sons of God. The sons of God. The daughters of men. Daughters of men. Had children, and they were called Nephilim. Okay. So we're going to identify those three groups. Yeah. I don't think you're going to want to miss this. So we're going to take a little break. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We are continuing our series in the beginning. This is part four, and we're going to have them all together for you at some point. We're probably going to go six lessons, I'm thinking. Maybe Rosie put up seven fingers. I don't think so. We're going to try to get it done in six. So we'll take a short break and come back as we continue our study in the beginning. Awfully glad you're with me today. I'm just uh, so glad. Be right back. So 
So the sons of God are having mm, sex with the, the daughters and they're producing the Nephilim. What is Jeff going to say, Bill? I don't know. Why don't you ask him? Well, I don't know. I'm getting kind of nervous. So I think I should just ask him, Jeff, what is going on with this? Well, we, we remember, we only have a couple of verses about this. So um, the, the, this is what I think, this picture that we were about to discuss, I think best reconciles just the few verses that we have, but I understand there's various varying opinions on this, obviously. But let's walk through this and the specific passages that we need to uh, kind of reconcile to paint a picture, and let's paint the picture of what's going on. So we've got the sons of God having relations with the daughters of men and having children with them called these Nephilim. So let's identify the, the groups. First, the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Well, if you look at Scripture and you define what is a son of God, we have four specific people or groups that are called sons of God in Scripture. Number one, Adam is called the son of God. Now, I don't think this is Adam here that's being talked about here, obviously, but Adam is called the son of God because, for example, in the genealogy in Luke, it says Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, Adam, son of God. Adam is a son of God because God made Adam. Everybody else was the product of reproduction, was the son of a mother and father, except for Adam. He was the son of God. Interestingly, angels are called sons of God several times in Scripture. So in Genesis 2, I believe here, the sons of God is referring just like in Job chapter 1 when it says the sons of God came before God, the angels came before God, and also in Job uh, 38, it says the sons of God, meaning the angels, Thirty-eight, Job 38, 7, verse 7. And so I think this, the angels are called sons of God. Why? Because they were made by God. So angels are also called sons of God. By the way, the other two groups are Jesus, obviously, is called the son of God. And I think he's called the son of God because God made his body for him, for his incarnation in the womb of of the virgin. He wasn't the product of reproduction. A man and a woman didn't make Jesus's body. God made Jesus's body. And then finally, oh, this is the coolest one. This is so cool. My, who, what was your dad's name? Chuck. Chuck. Well, in your natural state, you were the, were the son, son of, Chuck. of Chuck. But when you believed in Christ, God made you new you are now a new creation by God's hand, and now John 1 says that you've been given the right to be called a child of God. You are now a son of God in your born-again self because now your new nature is the result of a direct creative act of God. You're a son of God. Hmm. John one twelve. John one twelve. As many as received him. So Jesus, believers, Adam, and angels. And so I believe the sons of God that are discussed here in Genesis 6 are angels, specifically the fallen angels that lost their place in heaven. They came down and and had relations with men. So understand, by the way, theologically, I should mention this, there are three basic views that theologians will talk about on this, being the, who are the sons of God. Some say they're fallen angels, like I believe. Some say they're just describing human rulers. But sons of God doesn't really apply to human rules, rulers. And others say they're the descendants of Seth. 
and the daughters of men were the descendants of Cain. And I, 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 we won't go into analyzing these three views, but I think Scripture is clear. The sons of God, I think, have to be the fallen angels. Well, now, who are the daughters of men? Well, I think verse 1 actually tells us who the daughters of men are. It says this, when men began to multiply and have and on the face of the land and had daughters were born to them. These are the daughters of men. So it's human women, the women that were born to the descendants of, of Adam and Eve and, and, uh, and so on. So I think we can conclude fairly straightforwardly that the daughters of men are actually human women. That leaves the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? So the first question we need to ask is, can fallen angels have physical relations with human women? And there are obviously some that will say, no, that's impossible. And I say, well, tell me, show me that scripture where it says that they can't. I actually believe that Roman, uh, Romans, Genesis 6 is saying that they did have relations and have children. Um, and a literal reading of this seems to indicate that the fallen angels married and had sexual relations with human women and had children called Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim, the word Nephilim simply means uh, fallen, a fallen one or a, or a giant. Um, so it's, it's, they were obviously called men of renown and, and were giants, were, were probably, think of all the mythology around the world about the gods coming down from heaven and having relations with human women and having what in mythology is called demagogues. So Hercules was like a demagogue. He was, he was half angel, half God, half human man. Well, what if those mythologies have a basis of truth from Genesis chapter 6 before the flood when Noah would have told his grandchildren and great-grandchildren about, hey, you should have seen it before the flood. These fallen angels came down and had relations, and we had these Nephilim on the earth. Um, So I take Scripture at face value and believe that these Nephilim are half fallen angel, half human women. And so, but this obviously was not God's design for the world. It was not his intent. So Genesis 6, 11 actually starts describing the flood and why God brings the flood. And he talks about this corruption that the world has entered into. All right? So hold on to that thought because I think this, these half-breeds are one of the primary reasons why God sent the flood in the first place, all right? So the flood is sent. We have three people groups. We have people, and are they killed by a watery flood at the time of Noah? And it's like, the answer is yes. And when they were killed, their spirits would have gone to this to the grave or to Hades in the Old Testament called Sheol. Remember, we had a good side and a mm-hmm. bad side. And that's where the righteous and the unrighteous went when they died before the cross to this place called Sheol or Hades. So I think all the people would have died, like Scripture says, and their spirits would have gone to Sheol, human spirits. Now, the fallen angels, would they have been killed by a flood? And I don't think they would have been. But the New Testament gives us a clue of to what happened to them. Now, listen to this. In Jude chapter 1, God tells us that the angels who did not keep their position of authority, so 
of the fallen angels. They abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day, judgment day. So he, God tells us in Jude that the fallen angels are being held for judgment with chains. Second Peter 2 says it this way, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, in your English Bible, the Greek is actually Tartarus. I think it's just a holding place. This is the only place that word is used, so we don't know a lot about it. Putting them into chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So he seems to link these angels, fallen angels, being held for judgment with the timing of the flood. So I think one of the things that God does at the flood was say, okay, no more of that. You fallen angels, I'm going to lock you up with chains in this place called Tartarus until judgment day comes right? So all the fallen angels are now now being held. Now we have one more group of people. We have these Nephilim. Now the Nephilim are half-breeds, half-angel, half-man, if if this theory is correct. Would they be killed by the flood? I think it's a fair assumption to say yes, they would have been. In fact, if this corruption of human flesh is what God is really dealing with at the flood, well, then surely they would have been taken care of. For sure. All right. Now we've got the spirits of the Nephilim. Hmm. They wouldn't go to Sheol because that's for men. But their bodies were killed. So what happens to them? Well, we just so happen to we have. Char- we should charge a premium service for this answer. <laughs> <laughs> for an extra four ninety five a month, you'll get the answer to this. <laughs> well, I think it's worth it because I think it's really cool because in the Gospels. We have these accounts of these demons, these bodiless spirits that indwell other people looking for a body to indwell, right? And we know that they exist because we see them in the New Testament, but we don't have any idea where they came from. Where did the demons come from? Well, theologians, many will say, well, they're fallen angels. And I say, well, wait a minute. Angels always appear bodily. And besides the fallen angels, God tells us in Jude and in Peter that they're being held for judgment. So I don't think the fallen angels can be the demons. But we do have these disembodied spirits of the Nephilim that are still roaming the earth. And I think a better candidate for where did demons come from are the disembodied spirit of the Nephilim who were killed at the flood of Noah. Now, some people might want their money back. (laughs) (laughs) No refunds. That's my policy. No No refunds. refunds. Yeah. So really, there's... So where do you get demons? You only have really three choices. They're either fallen angels, right? Which I don't think is possible because of the passages we read. The disembodied Nephilim who were destroyed at the flood, these half-breeds, right? These men of renown. Or God somehow made demons, but God would never make something evil. Can't picture that. I can't either. He, so he would have made them good, like the angels. Mm-hmm. All the angels were made good. They chose to fall. We have that in Scripture. We have that narrative of their creation, of their fall in Scripture. We don't have anything on the demons. So, look, we have a couple verses here. 
I think this picture best explains kind of all these pieces together. But, you know, this is not one of these things to, you know, to push and to die upon. But I think that's kind of just a cool explanation of not only the Nephilim and where they came from, what happened to them, and how we're still reaping the, the, the consequences of that today through demons. Now, I mentioned earlier that this corruption of human beings is one of the key components. So watch this. A lot of people focus on Genesis 6-5, where it says that it's the wickedness that was on the earth, that every inclination and thoughts of heart of man's heart was evil all the time. And they say, well, it's the wickedness of man that caused the flood. But I've got to ask, wasn't man still wicked after the flood? Yes. <laughs> wasn't, hasn't there been wickedness in every single generation since then? Affirmative. Yeah. So now we go to verse 11, and he tells us this. God tells us this. I'm going to read this in the King James Version for a reason. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. We've got this picture of flesh being corrupted, and I think that's a reference to the fact that his intention was not to have these half-breeds roaming around the earth. So I think one of the big reasons he sent the flood was to eliminate this corruption, this half-breed of the sons of God having relations with the daughter of men and having children with them. Wow. I think I have to take a break. Uh, <laughs> splash some cold water on my face. You know, I don't know. I need a break. But we'll be back. Let's with, take a break. We'll be back. Jeff Ferdorn, in the beginning is our series. Can't wait. Splash a little cold water on my face, did 25 burpees, so I'm ready to re-engage with this. Interesting conversation, Jeff. I'm curious, though, uh, if God wiped out all the Nephilim in the flood, why are the Nephilim mentioned in Numbers chapter 13? They are. They. Uh, it, it talks about, uh, in Numbers, it says, we saw the Nephilim there. Um, that we are like grasshopper in, grasshoppers in, their, in our own eyes and... and uh, I can't remember the whole verse, but uh, basically they were large men and they call them Nephilim. Um, And so some suggest that the Nephilim that uh, were the products of fallen angels and human women uh, weren't completely wiped out at the flood uh, and are still alive uh, today even. Some will say that they're alive today. I just don't think that is possible. We know who survived the flood, and that was Noah and his wife and his three kids and their wives. And there's no mention that any of them were Nephilim. They were people. And so I don't think any of that DNA or whatever would have survived the flood. And I think if, it, if they did, well, then why send the flood? 
Why would God send the flood to get rid of the corruption that he was describing, these half-breeds, if they were just to survive and go on? So why did the why is the term Nephilim used in numbers? Well, remember, Nephilim means giant. So I think all they're describing here is that look at those people that we're supposed to fight. They're giants, kind of like David when he came upon Goliath. Remember, he was a large, very large man. And so they would have called him a giant, or uh, in Hebrew, the Nephilim. So Mm -hmm. I think that is why that word is used there. They're using the words just as, you know, remember, Noah lived to be 900 years old. He would have lived hundreds of years past the flood, and he would have told the generations about the Nephilim. And so they're just using this word to describe the people that they see. They are like the Nephilim. They are just giants. So I don't think there's any enough, and I know this is out there. If you have read on the internet, I know there's lots of pages out there about, hey, there's Nephilim here today right now. I just don't believe that's possible biblically. What do you say to people who are World Wrestling Federation fans? <laughs> Andre the Giant? Come on, that's a Nephilim. He was a, he was a giant. <laughs> yeah, he was. And he played a great giant he in did. one of oh. my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And uh, that was called yeah, Princess Bride, exactly. Mm-hmm, yeah. One of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. All right, so we're going to the flood now. So God sends, we have about, oh, we got about nine minutes left here. So that is why I think God sent the flood. Sure, the world was evil, but there was this corruption that he was dealing with, this this half-breeds in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6. The next word that that confuses some people is the word grieved. So in Genesis 6, 6, it says, the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Was God sorry, as some want to describe this, that God made man? And I, that's not the picture here. That's not the Hebrew word that's used here. This Hebrew word is nekam, and it's it's really a sigh or to breathe strongly it's, it's this idea that God is saying from heaven, oh, look at his, what's become of this world. This is not the plan that I intended, right? And so he's, he's sighing. That's what that word grieved means in the Hebrew. It's not that he was sorry, like he regretted making mankind. I don't think that's the picture here in Genesis 6 at all. So then we get to the flood. And... I understand that geologists around the world and historians around the world and universities and scientists and so on all deny that there was a global flood that covered the whole earth. So in the time remaining and next time, I want to talk about some of the evidences that we have that there was a global flood that covered the whole earth. What are the evidences that support this idea? Because God says that the whole earth was covered with water. And I believe it just because God says it. But it would be cool to have some evidences of this event called the worldwide flood of Noah. And there are. In fact, um, a friend of mine, his name is Del Tackett, he did a movie called Genesis is History. And we were talking about this one time, and he said this to me. He said, you know, I think that science would actually believe in a worldwide flood, because of all the evidence for a worldwide flood, except for the fact that the Bible declares that there was a worldwide flood. And I said, I think you're absolutely right. 
There was so much evidence that the whole earth was covered with water, but I don't think science is willing to accept that because God says the earth was covered with water one day. I think every civilization has a world flood recorded in their in their history. Yeah, in fact, that's one of my lines. So I've got seven evidences that I thought we'd start going through, and okay. we'll probably finish them up next time. And it relates to, and that's one of the categories. So we're going to look a little bit at fossils. We're going to look at what is called polystrate fossils, or fossils that cross different strata in the record, and 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 show how that is evidence that these strata were all laid down at one time, not over millions of years, uh, as a lot of science says. We're going to look at uh, sediment layers, specifically at the Grand Canyon. We're going to look at Mount St. Helens, which had an event here over our lifetime, which mimicked the processes, I believe, that made the Grand Canyon. So we're going to look at an example of Mount St. Helens. We're going to look at global flood legends around the world, which is kind of interesting. Now, in and of itself, it's obviously not proof that there is a worldwide flood, but it's very fascinating to me that virtually every culture around the world has uh, some kind of legend or mythology surrounding a worldwide flood. And then finally, number seven is that God says it, and we'll look in Scripture where God says that he flooded the earth. All right, so number one, and and remember, this is going to be an overview, so we're not going to go into a ton of detail here, but the number one evidence of a worldwide flood is the fossil record. If you look around the world, you will find fossils um, all over the world. In order to get a fossil, the conditions have to be just right. And a flood with massive flows of mud and debris and dirt and so on is a perfect environment to create fossils. If a, if a, if a, you know, a deer dies in the woods, uh, and decays away, there's not going to be any fossil if you come back, you know, hundreds of years later. It doesn't happen that way. It needs to be covered up in this, you know, solution and, you know, generally with water and material and minerals and so on. And over time, as it's buried, the 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 bones will absorb the minerals and become a, a fossil. Um, so there's a very specific set of conditions. And most scientists will, when they come across fossil finds, they'll say local flood. Local flood, local flood. Well, they, they say that all around the world. And I believe a better explanation was that there was a worldwide flood that created much, if not most, of the fossil record that we see today. We find whale fossils in deserts in Chile. We find sea fossils on the tops of every mountain range of the world. And so clearly, the landmass that is here today was at one time covered with water. And I think the story of Noah's flood from Genesis is the best explanation why. Number two are what is called these polystrate fossils, or fossils that uh, cross the strata. Now, a little... Is that like a pepperoni that crosses two pieces of pizza? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you got to put it in my terminology here, Jeff. That that didn't get fully cut exactly. by the roller? Yeah. Exactly. Don't you hate that? Because then it pulls all the cheese off, Thank too. You. Thank yeah. you. Yes. I got it. I got it. Um, no. <laughs> Simply. So, little uh, 30 seconds here. The different strata, the different layers that we see, most scientists believe that those were all laid down over millions and millions of years. Now, next time, we'll get to these strata 
because I don't think I think they were all laid down at the time of the flood. And there's many reasons why. One of the reasons is we find fossils that cross or go across multiple strata, multiple layers in the in the in the strata. If they were laid down over millions of years, then we can't have one organism crossing between these strata. Do you see what I'm saying? And yet we find these. We find palm branches. We find trees. We find animal skeletons that actually cut across multiple strata. So the idea that these strata were laid down over millions of years, you could not find fossils that cross or go across multiple strata line. So good. I know, and I, I don't. I don't know why this simple fact, in and of itself, isn't proof enough. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I've got questions pouring in, and oh. I I couldn't even take time for questions today. So I want to apologize to everyone who put in excellent questions. We're going to save them, and we're probably now pushing this series into <laughs> seven or eight. Well, uh, when be- we continue our evidences, can we take some of the questions we next can. time? We can. All right. Yeah, they're great questions, and. This hour has flown by, and I can't wait to resume part five, which will be in two weeks, two weeks from today at this time. Perfect. Thanks, Thank you, Jeff. Yep, Jeff Ferdorn has been my guest. That wraps up our show. It's been an outstanding day. I've loved being with you. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.